Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. FYI, Radio Motherboard is supported by Google Home. Find out more at google.com slash home. Hey everyone, this is Jason Kebler, the Editor-in-Chief of Motherboard, and today I'm very happy to have Ben Maku with us. Hey Ben, what's up? What's up? Thanks for having me. Yeah, Ben, who are you? I am the correspondent for CyberWar. I'm also a Motherboard lifer. It's my favorite vice. My favorite vice vertical. I used to be one of the editors with you, Jason. Yeah, Ben, we miss you, but very excited that you've gone on to huge things and that you're still in the mix and write for us sometimes and are obviously covering things that, uh, you know, Motherboard cares a lot about. Um, so today we're recording this on Tuesday and tonight is the season two premiere of Cyber War. If people have no idea what Cyber War is, can you just like give us a quick rundown? It's the premier hacking television show as far as I know. I agree. It is the premier hacking television show and it takes sort of a deep dive into how cybersecurity and signals intelligence affects geopolitics around the world. But also I think we do a pretty good job, my team and I, of, of trying to make sure that the average person understands how it affects them and how they're part of this, this brand new landscape that's really emerging today. So today is the premiere of season two, but can you give us a quick rundown of where you went and what you did in season one? What have people already missed? So season one, we kind of started off, it's funny, we started off with the sort of the novel hacks, just because I feel like that was kind of the way pop culture and people saw it, including ourselves to some degree. Because, you know, one thing about us and our show is that we are reporters who got into this. We are not technologists. We are people who report on this stuff. So at first, I think it, it kind of reflected that, like we did stuff on like the Sony hack, which I always say is it took, you know, a, a Seth Rogen stoner comedy to get people's attention that hacking and leaking information is real and it's a real thing. So that was one of the episodes we covered in the first season. Also, we did a, a deep dive on Anonymous. Then we kind of started to uh, evolve into things like we looked at, which I think is really the first, the first true form of cyber warfare, so to speak other than Stuxnet, let's say. Um, the Ukrainian ha- power grid was hacked in 2015 by what we know now to be Russian hackers, Russian state hackers. And, you know, something like 230,000 Ukrainians didn't have power for anywhere between one to six hours. And this is all because of a cyber attack. So we started to kind of evolve our perspective on it. And then finally, we ended with a look at artificial intelligence and how that might be the next unbeatable hacker. And then right after that, we kind of thought that might be the last episode of the series, but then we got greenlit for another series. So now this series, this season, 
is I think the, what we've taken, we've taken a tact that now cyber warfare, cybersecurity is no longer just sort of this novel concept where, you know, people always ask me like, what would a cyber war look like? Which is kind of insane because I think anybody who knows about this stuff is, knows that cyber warfare is not its own separate conflict. It just feeds into all conflict, whether it be espionage, geopolitics, and an actual kinetic warfare. It's, it's, it's a part of it and also information warfare. So that's, that's kind of the tact we've taken this season that this has now become just another tool in the toolbox because we're all obviously also connected and there's so much that an attacker can, can take or can spill or can break. And it's no longer this, you know, sci-fi concept. Right. So it seems like in season one, you know, you took some of these major cultural events like the Sony hack, uh, Stuxnet, you also looked into anonymous, like these are things that people have heard of, but that might be the extent of what they've heard about hacking. Like hacking wasn't omnipresent in everyone's lives. Um, whereas, you know, in the last year, things have really changed. You know, we are sort of constantly talking about hacking and we're talking about, uh, disinformation campaigns, obviously, you know, all of the Russia stuff, whether that is just like sort of the DNC WikiLeaks aspect or more recently sort of the Facebook ads and that sort of thing. Um, what do you think has changed in the last year as far as the sort of cultural implications and awareness of hacking? I mean, I think you, you, you said it right. I think it's, you know, you look at something like DNC and this essentially made like a house of cards plot a real thing. Like now it's, it's real. Like Gussifer, Guccifer 2.0, when they leaked all that information and, and managed to successfully, I mean, we can't put a metric on it. Nobody really can of how it affected the U.S. election. But I would say we can all agree that it, it certainly affected it in some way or another. The fact that people know that now, that this has been, this is now something that is real, I think that did a lot in terms of the consciousness of, of people and how they saw hackers. It was you know, it, it wasn't this, you know, I keep saying no longer because it's, it seems like people now, the way they treat hacking, when I speak to them, it's no longer this mind blowing thing. It's, oh my God, what else can they do? Because obviously they can do a lot because if they can affect the presidential election, I mean, Jason, if you, if you thought five years ago that hackers would have affected the presidential election of 2016, would you have said yes? I, like, I honestly don't think I think I would have said no. Yeah, I think I would have said no as well. And when you say it's real now, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it, because obviously, it's sort of always been real. But when we t when we think about the things like that, people were hacking, it's like, okay, the before this, the Sony hack, maybe the OPM hack were sort of the major ones. And it's like, okay, you know, they're releasing movies, uh, you know, anonymous is defacing some stuff. Uh, the NSA is hacking into Iranian uh, uh, uranium enrichment facilities, which is very, very real thing. But that is a, the U.S. is doing it against someone else, whereas now this is sort of interfering with what we consider to be, you know, some of the most sacred things that Americans consider like the foundation of the American government, essentially. I mean, is that what you mean by real? Like these are things now that have left the realm of entertainment and defacement and something that only the Americans do to something that is like really affecting the day-to-day -day politics and livelihoods of a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's, that, that's, that's what I'm trying to get at. I mean, also I think, I think it's twofold, right? Like I think 
I think in the last five years, I think the capabilities of hackers has also increased. I think it's obviously evolved just from its own like its own professional evolution. You know what I mean? I think like I think it's it, it's it's gotten better, just like anything else has. But also, I think if you look in the last five years, the connectedness of just any device and the the number of networks that's that's also increased tenfold. You know, I don't I don't want to say like IoT is the is the game changer, like it's sort of this buzzword now, but it really is. Like, I mean, five years ago, I wasn't like smart connecting my my toaster to a to an internet Wi-Fi system. You know what I mean? Like it, it's like when you when you look at the target platform that's now there and you look at the professionalism of of hackers nowadays, and then you also look at how it's been implemented in new ways, it, it I think it's gone, it's gone, it's kind of, like you pointed out, it's kind of gone out of the shadows of, of this can only happen abroad or this only happens in novel ways. And it's been, it's been implemented into the serious ways we engage on a political level and also how we all relate with one another. Right. Just period. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting point you bring up is like the proliferation of internet connected devices as well as the fact that most uh, manufacturers don't take security seriously results in a bunch of hackable devices that are not only you know leaking our information you know specifically when those devices get hacked but then they can become sort of zombie like devices that can be used for other things like we saw with the Mirai botnet you have you have some like Mirai can knock out you know, knocked out Twitter and some some websites that we all use. Right, right. So, and this is a bunch of script kids. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are not terribly sophisticated hacks. And I think that's something no. that uh, you get at in the DNC episode that I want to talk about in a minute. But I want to first talk about um, how you got into this. Because I remember when you were at Motherboard, you were reporting a lot on ISIS and sort of uh, social media use by ISIS and other uh, militia groups in the Middle East. Um, how did you make the pivot from that to sort of this this cyber war beat? Well, I remember I originally got into just cybersecurity and understanding signals intelligence just pre Snowden. I started to read some stuff on on um, on the NSA leaks or of two thousand four. I think it was Stellar Wind at that point, and I kind of got really into it. And then Snowden happened, and it was like, whoa, okay, this is extremely interesting. And I was I was like the young wire reporter where I was in my bureau and I kind of got asked a lot of questions and I was involved with the expertise surrounding Snowden because I was the only one who understood, you know, like what a Tor browser was or, Mm -hmm. you know, what have you. And that kind of sparked an interest and I started getting into jihadis online. I started realizing these guys were also kind of using this new space to proliferate and do what they wanted to do and, 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 and engage in their agenda. You know, it was always struck me as insane that I was able to talk to people in Al Qaeda or the Islamic state online i would actually have conversations with them when you know the preceding 12 years or so had made terrorists seem like these evasive boogeymen and I, now i was engaging with them in real time and that was that represented not only a cultural shift but also i think it represented a technological shift right so i got into that and then i went to motherboard and i was doing this stuff and i kind of stayed always on top of the anonymous beat uh with another writer here patrick mcguire we would write together and even even at uh, Motherboard, I did some of the NSA stuff. And and then when Viceland came out, we Patrick McGuire and I kind of came up with this this concept. He more than I, but I, I certainly helped him a little bit. 
and it was essentially just a show like we wanted to see like we wanted a show that was as nerdy as we were which just was focusing on you know like signals intel spies and the world that it entails and right. i think that that's that's how it all came to be really right one thing that we've always had trouble with and i think that everyone has always had trouble with is how you visualize a hack and it's really interesting that you did a whole tv show tv series of short documentaries about hacking and signals intelligence and these sort of abstract things that usually aren't very visual um you know even when we just write articles about hacking it's hard to find like what photo we're going to use are we going to use another photo of a server rack are we going to use another photo of like a guy a stock image of a guy at Uh, wearing a ski mask or something like that. So can you tell me a little bit about how you have been able to sort of translate this not only complex complex topic, but also this not terribly visual topic to TV in a pretty engaging way, I think? Oh, man, it's been (laughs) – that's like the biggest war of it, to be honest with you. I think first off, from a completely industry perspective of TV, you need to have a really good DP. You gotta have a really strong DP who understands how to create scenes and, and shoot them in a in an interesting way, in a beautiful way. I think that that's something that our show has always had. It's always been shot very very beautifully, and I think you know both DPs who's, who've worked on it and their and their B cams have been awesome. And that's number one. We also set a look for the show. We wanted it to be kind of espionage, spy thriller to some extent. The other thing is too is like having great GFX, understanding when to show what the you know what the 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 ddos attack will look like and how we're going to animate that and then sticking to an actual style that we set out and then the other thing is is to try to do as many interesting things or interesting setups with the actual hackers themselves ultimately some of the some of the cool scenes we have are guys in masks which i'm sure jason you know about as well just these hackers who just love to wear masks on camera yeah um, and that's like, that obviously like helps with the kind of building the, what's the word for it? The, the mystique around the show and around the interviews. That's one way. And also, again, it was kind of like what I alluded to earlier. I never, we've never tried to be technologists and be, you know, so in the weeds and understanding of this world that we would start to muddle it and not make it translatable into layman terms. I think that's sometimes where you can have trouble. You, you try to include too much detail and please too much that infosec crowd and i think like when i know we've done a good job is when the infosec crowd thinks we've captured the moment right but also thinks that we've we've made it fun and interesting and that to be honest with you was it was a war to do that it it wasn't easy often hackers are pseudonymous um or anonymous um attribution is tough they're also ones who like to play pranks on people so uh, I'm wondering, you know, as much as you can tell me, I don't, I don't want you to give away anything, any trade craft, reporting trade craft. But how did you go about making sure the people who you spoke to were the people that they said they were? And then how did you convince some people who were maybe a bit skittish to go on record with you? Honestly, sometimes it's really easy, and other times it's incredibly hard. Uh, I think. For some of the interviews we had, we always we always go through sources of, of people that we that we trust and groups that we've been involved with. Usually, that's a good way to know if you're onto something. In that, if you're with a hacker circle that's 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 doing interesting things or doing shady things, and you've verified that, and you meet other people through them, 
and you're involved with that crew, it's a good way to know that you're st- you're onto something. Now, like you said, there's a chance that people could be messing with you. There's no doubt about it. And that's something that sort of completely keeps me up at night. But also another way to do it is like when you are being going down that path, I think you need to be very clear to the audience that you say like, look, this is, I don't know what the hell I'm doing right now. This is really weirding me out. And this is, this is a difficult story. And I don't know if this guy's telling me the truth or he's not telling me the truth. You know, that's, that's kind of the first few steps. And then after that, if you can start to see what they're doing, I mean, there's obviously ways to verify it. Um, and uh, cross-reference things. I mean, you, you had this problem even with jihadists. Like, like, who are these people? You know what I mean? And the same goes with some anonymous reporting. You're in these, you're in these, these, uh, these chat rooms, these IRCs, and you kind of don't know what's going on and who they are, and you don't know if these people are playing tricks on you, and it's just all for the wall. Do you have Google Home? Well, now you can ask it to play Radio Motherboard. Instead of using your hands to tap or type your way to us, you can command Google to play the Radio Motherboard podcast and sit back, relax, and listen. The future is here, and Google Home is making it possible. Yeah, one thing we always try to do with our reporting is try to basically show that, you know, hacks are, at the end of the day, perpetrated by real people. Um, And I think CyberWar does a pretty good job of showing, you know, if not, hey, this is, you know, James Ramsey you know, age 24, lives in Silver Spring, Maryland, perpetrated XYZ hack, you know, you get to the, you show that there are personalities, that there are people behind each individual hack, and that it's not necessarily like that mysterious. Um, Is that sort of like the mission statement or one of the mission statements of the show? Absolutely. We, you know, that's the question I get all the time is, you know, what are hackers like? Like, how do you meet? Like, what are they? Are they just like guys in hoodies and stuff like that? And it's ridiculous because the answer I always give them is hackers are kind of as eclectic as human beings. There's so many different types of them. They're not, not all the same. And we really try to show the characters for who they are, their quirkiness and all. And I think that's always been sort of a, a hallmark of the show and why people will connect with certain certain characters. We had this one guy this season... I mean, well, for one, Barrett Brown, who's now a motherboard columnist, who's this you know very pretty famous anonymous reporter, or he reported on anonymous, went to jail. I mean, and this is this guy is a very he's a super smart guy, really really nice guy, really enjoyed my time with him. He's also weird as hell, <laughs> and we kind of wanted to show that, like, we wanted to show like this this like this kind of genius mind and how it works and what his life is like and sort of these like he had a a lot of these very funny, he it was a, obviously he's a, ponders a lot, and then he comes out with these very massively uh, incisive lines that are just dropped out of nowhere. And it was it was really interesting to kind of listen to this guy because there's always kind of this minefield of these things. We wanted to show that and kind of get into his world and see what it's like because obviously this is a very interesting, smart person that's affected this space. So what are they like? And we always try to do. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Question of what are they like? We need this other guy named Freddie Martinez, who's probably one of my favorite hackers I've ever spoken to. He's just a really cool dude. And he created his own IMSI catcher. And he's definitely got his own, like, his own you know, quirks. And we really got to, to see those quirks, which I thought really made him speak as not only a character, but as a human being. So it's not just this sort of like dude in a hoodie or whatever Trump said, the 400 pound guy in the, in the basement. Right. Yeah. These are real people with real interests and have real personalities. Yeah. If you're not familiar, an MC catcher is usually or sometimes known as a stingray. It's basically a fake cell tower that law enforcement uses to track, uh, ostensibly to track uh, suspects, um, their movements, etc. But in doing so, they end up tracking, you know, everyone who is in a geographical area. So it's become a big privacy uh, conundrum and question that's been reviewed by a lot of actually uh, state Supreme Courts. But yes, all law enforcement all over the world is using are using MC catchers and uh, how they work is pretty mysterious. So it's pretty cool that this guy managed to make his own yeah, he made his own, and, and in the same episode, we got uh, a, Chicago, or a yeah, Chicago Police Department uh, officer to actually, on the record, obviously anonymously, explain to us how he uses a social media monitoring and how they used IMSI catchers in protests, etc. So it's it's definitely a world we you don't really see, and law enforcement are classically tight-lipped around it because obviously this stuff really does sort of blur the line of civil liberties. Right. I mean, for a while, the FBI was dropping cases rather than revealing to courts how they worked or that they even had them, which is absolutely insane. Yeah, because they make they make uh, these police departments sign non-disclosure agreements where they can't release it on under any circumstances or they get sued for mass amounts of money. There's literally been situations where there was a child porn case got dropped because of it, just for the same reasons, and a mafia case got dropped for the same reasons. It's pretty insane. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I have seen two episodes of this new season so far. Um, we have one with uh, Mike Cernovich and some other of the sort of alt-right meme brigade, uh, which is pretty interesting. It's, it's a, I think it was a really good entry point for people who haven't really been following that. Uh, at all. And then last night I watched the DNC hack episode, which um, I do want to talk to you specifically about that one in a sec, which I keep saying. But what what else can people expect this year? You don't have to go through every single episode, but uh, sort of like broad lines. What uh, what other hacks do you delve into? We delved into so many cool spaces this this season. We really it's it's a definitely our most global season. We went to Mexico City, looked at or Mexico actually went to went to Michoacan and Jalisco, which is kind of one of the the very spicy areas, hot areas of the uh, of the cartel wars right now. Looked at how cartels are, are use hackers or if they do. Uh, we did stuff on NSA CIA kill lists in, in Pakistan. We obviously went to we did a deep dive on the DNC hack and Russia's information and information war information warfare uh in eastern europe and, and abroad we also looked at iot we looked at uh the rise of the police surveillance state online it's a really eclectic season i'm really happy with it. it's definitely my favorite one so far 
Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm really impressed with the lineup you have going. So, uh, yes, let's talk about the DNC hack episode. Um, I watched it last night. Um, starts off, you know, kind of, you know, what were the effects of this hack? How did the intelligence agency attribute it to Russia? Um, you have a really interesting interview with Michael Hayden, where I think he, former uh, CIA chief Michael Hayden, who uh, was pretty forthcoming with you, I thought. And then, yeah, and then you end up going to Moscow to try to talk to, tr- basically try to find out some of the people who did this hack. And, you know, full disclosure, I think you'd say the same. We don't know if you talk to someone who was involved in the hack or not, but you talk to someone who said that they were a part of the hack. Um, tell me a little bit about this experience. How did this go down? Um, you know, it is truly one of those things where you're talking to someone with like a voice changer. And in one case, you had to recreate um, the interview because the guy got so skittish, he wouldn't even go on camera. But um, yeah, how did this go down? What can you tell me about it? What was that whole experience like? It was definitely one of the weirdest experiences of my life, uh, especially my reporting career in terms of trying to find stuff on this. So back in 2016, we started looking into an episode that actually ended up airing, the connection between black hat hackers and Russian intelligence. And we, you know, we were in Russia doing this. We we're tracking down a lot of hackers and getting into these weird scenes. And our fixer was going into these, these hacking community meetings and as, you know, as just wrapping this episode, shooting it, this is like probably July, August, 20, 2016, just that's happening. DNC happens, starts blowing up. And obviously, you know, having been in Russia, looking at black hat hackers and this is happening, it was, it was kind of insane. So then for the next few months, our fixer kept looking into connections to it and connections to the, the hacking scene and some characters started popping up. One particular character who was a, a malware writer that I was really trying to get in, get in contact with. I was in Russia in December doing a story on, on neo-Nazis and he, he kind of, he offered up a conversation with me and, you know, he, he ended up admitting that clearly there was, he knew of some connections to this, this hack within Russia and he panics and, and tells me this and, I didn't really know what to think, but one of the biggest things is when you're in Russia and someone starts telling you this kind of thing, you've got to start wondering who's watching you. Because I knew that the FSB was already watching me for, uh, based on other stuff I was doing when I was there. Because it's interestingly, the intelligence services really don't like the far right in Russia because they're really well organized and I was dealing with these people. So I, I, I knew I was getting tailed by the by the intelligence services and the and law enforcement in Russia. And then no I just had this conversation with this guy who I knew was legitimate and what he was saying, it was a bit, you know, it was definitely spooky. So I, and then at the same time I started getting hit up by this other individual who I call, I think Igor as like a, just a pseudonym. That's not his name. And he starts sending me things and he seems connected already to this online forum world that I already knew about where basically a lot of shady operators will put up, tenders or bids for for hacks and then these kind of vetted hackers will bid on them and and you know it's almost like this weird online tender marketplace kind of like the government in the u.s has and they and they and they do it so this guy starts hitting me up after the inauguration saying come meet me let's talk about dnc and i didn't really know what the heck to really believe but 
we started looking through what he was a part of and it seemed like, yeah, he was part of some really shady spaces. So we eventually ended up going to Russia to meet with him and he was going to give us all sorts of evidence and different things about his involvement in the DNC hack. And then we get there and the guy starts melting down. He suddenly refuses to go on camera. He also showed up clearly a little bit, you know, maybe under the weather or hungover, but also his hand was broken. He seemed extremely nervous. We didn't really know what the hell to think. And then he, he said, okay, well, I'll talk about it, but I will not do any audio or visual. Uh, I don't want any records if I want to write it down. So we did it. And, and then we asked for more information from him. He didn't give it to us, but he, he, he floated some pretty interesting, interesting uh, scenarios by us about who did the DNC hack or at least who was part of it. Yeah. And I, I mean, watching this, it was really interesting to watch. Um, I think I don't know if we'll ever know what happened with the DNC hack. And I think, you know, what you did is another piece of a very uh, incomplete puzzle. So, I mean, it was really interesting to watch. And I'm wondering, like, do you think we'll ever know what happened? Do you think we'll ever know who was involved, how this ultimately went down? Yes, I do. I do. I do believe I've talked to sources in, in, you know, the IC in the States and it seems pretty clear that and I, I had these conversations on background with with one source who's who's quite well placed, and you know my theory has always been, and especially when you read that unclassified report uh, from both the FBI, CIA, NSA, all those services. I mean, the fact that those those services are all agreeing with one another is a very interesting concept altogether because these, these these agencies do not agree with each other very often, and quite often they hate each other. But also, if you look at what they're supposed to provide in terms of an intelligence perspective to the president. You know, NSA provides signals intelligence. FBI provides law enforcement investigative uh, support. And you look at the CIA, they, they, they offer human intelligence. That's really what they're about. They're not about signals intelligence. Obviously, there's people that work in signals intelligence for the CIA, but CIA is human intelligence. They're more of a, a, broader, a broader perspective. And when you look at the report, you can tell that they keep personally implicating Vladimir Putin in the sanctioning of these attacks. Now, when they're doing that, there's intelligence behind that. And to me, that was not just signals intelligence, that was human intelligence. And the whole report, if you really, if you cover the spy game, for lack of a better term, it really seems spy versus spy. And it, it actually, that report really surprised me just as how specific the charges that the IC was leveling at Russia. And to me, when they're doing that, there's a lot of evidence. Now, that's that's on the one hand. The second thing is we have a very exhaustive Mueller investigation that is happening right now as we speak. And he's already implicated some of the suspects that we've all looked at as, as somebody that are very fishy, i.e. Paul Manafort, who I think is just lucifer you know like the guy is just i don't know if you know you know he's he's been a contractor for the isi in pakistan i saw that yes he's been a contractor for the isi that is the, one of the most insidious intelligence agencies on planet earth and not only that then he worked for the fsb then he worked for yanukovych who was an fsb plant i mean and then it seems it seems clear that if anyone is going down like m there's no way manafort gets out of this clean 
No, and the other thing to me is how was he even allowed near the Trump campaign? Like knowing all this, it's just it blows my mind. That shows the incompetence and the, the amateurishness of of that administration. You're gonna let a toxic individual like Paul Manafort near your your campaign? I mean, it blows my mind. Anyway, that report's not out. It's not even think I don't even think it's half done. And, you know, when I saw it was Mueller that was going to do that investigation, I mean, Mueller's a killer, man. Like, if he's investigating you and you think he's got some, he thinks he's got something on you, he's going to find it. Yeah. I mean, I've had only very informal conversations with some people who know Mueller and know his work. And every single one of them has said, very serious individual, knows his shit, straight as an arrow, like, and he's get and he's getting places. So, I mean, we'll see. It's, it was all very super informal, nothing specific, but it does seem like that investigation is going somewhere. Oh, it's going somewhere. It's there's just no doubt in my mind it's going somewhere, and I think we're going to get answers. And I think, I think it's only a matter of time till we get more information on Russia, where that classified report starts getting a little more unclassified. And I don't know if they're going to publicly leak that stuff, but I think it'll come out at some point, just because it's too sought after it's too understood and i think there are people who know about it i think it's coming i mean if you saw the washington post report that came out and i think like mid to late august and it was sort of about how uh obama knew this was all going down and it was at such sensitive intelligence that it, he was the only one getting the intelligence personally from brennan in like destroy in, in destroyable envelopes Right. <laughs> and there was there was it was high confidence intelligence. Right. So I think I think sooner or later, some of this stuff will come out. Right. Uh, and I think we'll get a, a pretty good idea of it. And I'm also I am almost I'll give it just a little bit of doubt, but I'm almost 100 percent confident that Russia did it. Yeah, I mean, I think at first there was some confusion there, but it seems like when you have all the intelligence agencies agreeing to this extent, as well as, you know, sort of private uh, analysis and, and different, you know, public sort of nonprofit slash security researcher analysis suggesting it's Russia. It, it seems about as close as you're going to get to sort of a 100% confirmation of who it was. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and the other thing, too, is, you know, it's not just the 100% confirmation. It's like, look at the pattern of behavior that, that Russia has implemented before this. They've been doing this information style warfare for you know, the last decade against some of the former Soviet states. And it's the same kind of stuff. They did it to Ukraine. They've done it to some extent to Poland. They've done it, you know, they've tried it in Germany. But, you know, more than that, there's, it's, it's open. It's out there. Like, do you know that, have you heard of Valery Gerasimov? I have not, no. So he's the chief of general staff of the Russian armed forces. And he came up with a, a doctrine in 2013 called the Gerasimov Doctrine. And it was essentially set out, mapped out, Russia's geopolitical and warfare of the future, its goals, and part of it, it, it kind of prescribed what it should do. And it, basically, a complete roadmap of this happens, do this, this stuff. But it's a, it's a big chart. And there's, there's a peacetime and there's a wartime. And the only type of warfare that he includes that happens across peacetime and wartime is information warfare. And the whole idea of it, he says, is you have to weaken your enemy whether it's weakening their, their leadership so you can negotiate with a weaker leadership or you weaken it to the point of its own self-destruction. 
but you weaken it so that if you do face them on the battlefield, you're, you're facing a weakened opponent. And that's, it's pretty clear that that's exactly what they were doing. Not just with the DNC hack, but also, cause I, I always say, I don't even know if they really wanted Donald Trump to win. I'm not completely certain that that's actually what they wanted. To be completely honest, I think they wanted to sow chaos and mistrust in the U.S. political system. And I think it was a, it was a plus when Trump won, because I think now, if you look at it, you know, the U.S. political system is in disarray. A lot of the, I know that a lot of the intelligence agencies, specifically CIA apparently is suffering from a very, uh, a very, a moment of bad morale. You know, and that's obviously an advantage. I think the military is sort of on its toes because Mattis, you know, I think he's in conflict with Trump at times. The whole thing is not going so well. And if you're Russia, you're pretty happy. Yeah, I think that this is a a very good time to have a show like yours when you have sort of this omnipresent information warfare and cyber warfare. So, uh, yes, I think this is the perfect time to drop season two, honestly. Yeah, no, I agree. It's it's we're in a position of. What the fuck is going on? Cool. So uh, before I let you go, let's talk about where people can A, watch Cyber War and B, how uh, you can learn more about it on Motherboard. So uh, Cyber War airs on Viceland, both Canada and US this time, right? Yep, both. Tuesday nights, 10 p.m. Okay, and if you don't have Viceland, uh, we will have cut downs on Motherboard uh, throughout the week. Um, We'll be sharing different snippets on our social media as well as on our website and some uh, behind the scenes, deleted scenes, as well as behind the scenes sort of editorial pieces written by Ben and other motherboard staffers. So we're going to push this pretty heavily. Uh, You put out a really awesome season of work, at least from what I've seen so far, and I'm excited to see the other episodes. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's always nice to have a nice conversation with old Jason Kobler. Absolutely, Ben. I could talk to you all day, but uh, for our listeners' sake, I will let you go now. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This show is Cyber War, and that was Ben McCoo. I am Jason Kebler, the editor-in-chief of Motherboard. We'll be back with an episode next week. You can subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. And yes, find us at motherboard.vice.com. Thanks for listening. And don't forget. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Next episode, play Radio Motherboard on Google Home.